You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark this evening, and tonight we come to Mark's account of Jesus' healing a paralytic or a paralyzed person. Yeah, I'm going to be using the word paralytic a lot. It just means someone who's paralyzed. And in this account, we're going to see Jesus do something amazing. He's going to announce that a paralyzed man's sins are forgiven. And then he's going to back up his claim that he can forgive sins by healing this same exact man. All right, so this introduction is incredibly short. Just heads up. Be paying attention. So as we walk through this passage, I hope that you all see by the end of it that Jesus really is God. It's very simple. This sermon isn't going to be incredibly simple. If you're a Christian, these are things you already believe, but things that you need reminded of. And if you're here, I see we have a few visitors and you're not a Christian. These are things that you need to know and repent of your sin and believe. But I hope that by the end of this, we all see that Jesus really is God. And that as God, he really can and he really will forgive all who come to him in faith. I want you guys to be encouraged as you read Jesus' words to the paralytic. Son, your sins are forgiven. And know that if you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, the same is said to you. And I also want you all to see that our big problem really is sin. That's your big problem, is sin. But also that the Lord Jesus Christ has handled that problem in his death on the cross and in his resurrection on our behalf. So my goal this evening, honestly, and, I, and this is my goal every week that we meet together, is to make much of Christ. That's why we're here, is to make much of the Lord Jesus, that we might see him as the great forgiver of sins. That we might see him as the mighty God who has saved us and the Savior who speaks a word of pardon over sinners who come to him by faith alone. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our text for this evening. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, 
we never saw anything like this. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come before you this evening and we ask that you would bless us as we sit under the ministry of the word. Please seal this reading of sacred scripture to our hearts and help us to understand and really digest what your word has just proclaimed to us. Please grant us faith this evening to believe your word and look to the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Grant to us hearts to believe and in believing, hearts to obey whatever it is that you would command of us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our text begins by telling us that Jesus has returned to Capernaum. And he's been teaching all throughout Galilee is what chapter 1 verse 38 tells us. He's been teaching in the synagogues. At the end of chapter 1, we see that Jesus has to go out to desolate places, but people are still coming to him even there. So he's teaching in synagogues and in desolate places. But now, after some time, he decides to go back to Capernaum. And as we mentioned in some previous sermons, that city, Capernaum, was like his headquarters during his early stages of his ministry. And our text tells us in verse 1 that he was at home. And this is probably Peter and Andrew's house, right? The same house we read about in chapter 1 where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and all the crowds came and gathered there. Uh, It's probably Peter's house. But regardless, word gets out that Jesus is in Capernaum at a certain house and people start flocking to him at that house. And verse 2 tells us, Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So this great, huge crowd gathers at this house where Jesus is staying. And there's so many people there that there's not room in the house or even directly outside of the house. Right? Just a huge, massive crowd. And they've all gathered together to hear Jesus preach. Our text doesn't tell us that he's performing a ton of miracles at this time where he, where he had done that previously. Our text tells us he's preaching the word to them. And you might wonder, well, what, what word was he preaching to them? Well, he's preaching the same thing that we read in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, a summary of everything that Jesus taught. And it's this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the summary of everything Jesus was teaching them. So what he's doing to all these crowds who come to him, he's calling them to repentance and faith. Faith, particularly in him, for the forgiveness of sins. He's telling them that God's promises are all coming to pass. The time is fulfilled. God's promises are coming to pass. And they find their fulfillment in him and in what he's come to do as the Messiah, as the Christ. He's preaching to them that the kingdom of God is here and that he alone is the entrance into that kingdom. But while Jesus is in the house, surrounded by this crowd and preaching to them, something else is going on. We're going we're to read verses 3 and 4 now. Something else is going on as he's preaching this gospel of the kingdom. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So as Jesus is in the house teaching this massive crowd, five men come on the scene. Right? One paralyzed man and his four friends who are carrying him on a bed. Right? They get to the house and they realize there's not any chance of them getting through the door. Right? They can't get close to Jesus because the crowd is too big and obviously the people aren't willing to let them through, which it should be proof to us that not everyone who came to hear Jesus teach was a Christian because surely if this was a crowd made up of Christians, they would have said, oh, this paralyzed man needs to see the Lord and they would have let him through. 
Right? So this is a curious crowd. They're not necessarily all believers. But these five men can't get through. So what do they decide to do? They can't get in through the normal entrance. So they decide to make one of their own. Right? They go up onto the roof of the house. So these four men carry their paralyzed friend up to the roof and begin digging through the roof. And just real quick, carrying them up to the roof, there would have been an outdoor stairway on the outside of a lot of ancient houses that you would go outside and then up the stairs to get to the roof. But these men carry their friend up on the roof, and they begin breaking through the hardened mud that makes up the roof, digging through it, tearing the thatch apart. Right, if you don't know a little bit of ancient architecture stuff for you, roofs in that area at that time were often thatched roofs. Right, you take some like greenery, whatnot. I don't, I don't know, right? Because I've never done that. I'm not a pioneer. Remember reading about that stuff whenever you were in high school? But they would have a thatched roof, and then on top of that thatch, they would cover it with a bunch of mud, and then smooth it over, roll it out until the sun would bake it, and then all of this roofing sits on top of some wooden beams. What I'm, what I'm getting at is this would have been a lot of work for these guys digging through this stuff that had basically become hardened clay and then breaking the thatch apart and all this. And it's kind of funny to remember at the same time that Jesus is under the roof in the room directly below where these guys are, and he's trying to teach, right? Now, if you've ever taught, right, if you're a public school teacher, you've ever taught a Sunday school, led a small group, or even preached, you know that this would be just a little bit of a disruption, right? It'd be a little bit hard. I'm sure Jesus stopped teaching, right, as this is happening, you can put yourself in the room there and imagine that you're there. You hear some commotion on the roof, right? Some people stepping around. You hear thudding on the roof above you. And then you begin, little by little, to see dust and dirt falling from the ceiling to the ground. You, you would look up and then eventually see a little hole of light starting to form in the roof above Jesus. And slowly that hole gets bigger and bigger until you realize oh my gosh, there are four grown men up on this roof tearing this roof apart. They're putting a huge hole in it. And then once they make this hole big enough to lower their paralyzed friend down on his bed, they then tied some ropes to the bed and lower this man down in front of Jesus. Now, I, I want to stop for a second and point out something that maybe you've never thought about when reading this passage. Because I would imagine you've all heard this account multiple times. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? This is an often repeated account. But something that I had never thought about until this past week, these four men must have really loved their paralyzed friend. Sincerely, they had to have loved this guy. The paralytic can't walk. We don't know if he's quadriplegic or paraplegic, but he probably can't do really anything for himself. He's paralyzed. They know that this man's only hope is to be brought to Jesus. He can do nothing for himself. They believe that Jesus can and will heal their friend, so they bring him to Jesus. And notice in this text, they let nothing stand in their way. Like, th think about it for a moment. We don't know how far they came. We don't know how far they had to travel, but they did carry their friend the whole way. They carried him. And when they saw the crowds weren't going to let them through, they didn't give up. They were undeterred. They were resolved to bring their friend to Jesus. Imagine the work that it took to carry this dead weight of a paralyzed man up the stairs to the roof, and then the work it took to dig through the roof, and then, again, the work it would take to lower him down safely into the room below. These men had great faith that Jesus could 
and would heal the paralytic if they could just get him to Jesus. They're even willing to do damage to someone's property in order to make this happen. And no doubt these believing men were able or were willing to make the repairs or pay for the damages to be fixed. I don't think they were being evil in this. But it's a quick point of application, and we're going to come back to this at the end, so I'm giving you one of your two points of application early. I have to ask you this. Do you have a heart like these men? These godly men? These believing friends that this paralyzed man had? Do you have a heart that so desires your friends and family to come to Jesus in faith to be saved that you would carry them to him if you could? That you would rip the roof off of a house if that meant that they would come to Christ and be saved? These men knew that Jesus was the only hope for their friend. So they stopped at nothing to bring him to the Lord Jesus. Nothing would take them off of their mission to bring this paralyzed man to Christ. This is a really good example to us of how valuable godly friends are. Right? For you, Christian, how valuable godly friends are that your friends would carry you to Christ in their prayers, that they would carry you to Christ in talking to you about the things of God. That's what good Christian friends do. We rebuke one another. We encourage one another in the word. We take one another to Christ, as it were. But not only that, but this is a great example of how diligent that we ought to be in our evangelism. Bring them to Christ. And don't get me wrong. We understand man is dead in their sins. We get that, that people are by nature hostile to God. But still, the Bible gives us a responsibility to, as much as it depends upon us, present Christ to them. Take them to Christ. Take Christ to them. I want to encourage you, find a way past every obstacle that gets in your way like these men. Don't give up. Try with all your might to bring your unsafe friends and family to Jesus. But we'll come back to that later. But Jesus sees the faith of this group of men. And then he does something unexpected in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to be clear about something real quick because sometimes people will read verse 5 of this passage and do something really wonky, right? The faith of the paralytic's friends did not bring him the forgiveness of sins, right? I want to be really clear about that. That's not possible. You can't be saved by someone else's faith, right? Like that, how, how nice would that be sometimes, though, if you could believe in someone's stead that you love and you want them to know Christ? But that's not how it works. Our text tells us Jesus saw their faith. I think in light of what we know theologically, this has to mean the group, all five of these men. This must mean that the paralytic also exercised faith in Christ. And I say that because Jesus forgave the man's sins, and that only comes through an individual's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously, the paralytic couldn't do anything to get in the house, right? So how does Jesus see his faith? He couldn't do anything to get in the house, but I imagine he asked his friends to take him, right? And he didn't object to anything that was going on. He's not screaming at his friends to, don't let me down in front of this man, I don't believe, Right? This man wanted to come to Jesus. He was a believer. But Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. And that strikes us as a little bit odd, doesn't it? 
right? When we look at this paralyzed man, we think that his biggest need is to be able to walk, don't we? Right, Jesus, why would you say his sins are forgiven? He's paralyzed, right? I'm sure that that's why he came, right? Like, I'm, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, that's fabulous, and I am so grateful for that, but I can't walk, right? I'm sure that that probably went through his mind, right? I'm, I'm, I would imagine that's what would go through my mind if I came to be healed and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure that's what his friends brought him for. They want Jesus to heal his legs, But notice that Jesus here is more concerned about this man's soul than his inability to walk. Jesus is much more concerned with his soul. So what does he do? He forgives the man's sins. The crowd, like us, I'm sure, was focused on the temporal problem, the temporary, earthly, right now problem of this man. But Jesus was more concerned with the eternal state of his soul. Like we've seen before in chapter 1, Jesus is primarily concerned with doing spiritual good for people, right? He's primarily concerned with seeing sinners made right with God. If God would have looked down on humanity and said they need a doctor, then he would have sent a doctor. But the Bible tells us that God looked down on humanity and saw that we needed a savior, so he sent his son. This teaches us something really, really important, though, that Jesus would forgive his sins That's the first order of business with this man. It teaches us something really important. And if you're a note taker, write this down. The forgiveness of sins is the greatest need of every human being. That's what Jesus is teaching us in forgiving his sins before he does anything else. That's the biggest need, the greatest need of every human being. And what I'm getting ready to say, this is going to be old hat for nearly every one of you in here, but I pray that you would receive it. That's the truth of God's word because that's what it is. And we need to hear this old truth over and over again. So please listen. The forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. Why? Because our sins have alienated us from God and brought us under his wrath. Our God hates sin. Sin is the barrier that keeps us from knowing God and being in a right relationship with Him. And everyone is in some kind of relationship with God, either a child of God or, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, a child of God's wrath. But sin is what keeps us from being in a right relationship with God. By disobeying Him and breaking His laws and rebelling against Him, we have offended Him. Keep that thought in your mind. Your sin has offended the Almighty God. We've committed crimes against God. We have, in a sense, done him wrong. Think about it. He's created us, sustains us, gives us our breath, gives us everything that we have. Fathers, it's an appropriate thing. He's given you your wife. He's given you your children. They're gifts. Everything you have is a gift from this sovereign God. And yet, we rebel. We rebel in our sin. Ungrateful children. This is a horrible thing for us to do, to rebel against this good God. This is an offense that deserves the worst punishment. This is an offense that deserves hell. Eternal condemnation under the righteous, white-hot wrath of God. Please, please, think about your sin rightly. What I've just described is what you do. Not an abstract, we sin, I'm talking about your sin. You've offended the Almighty One. Think about your sin rightly. It really is horrible. It is disgusting. 
It is pure insolence. It is pure rebellion. It is pure ingratitude to the God who made you. It is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. Your sin, in that moment when you sin, is you're attempting to dethrone God, to un-God God and take his place. In your sinning, you say, I will do as I please. He has no authority over me. I will be my own God, at least in this moment. I'm talking to believer and unbeliever, all sin. That is what sin says without saying a word. And we know that God is holy, that God is just. In other words, he will not let this kind of crime slide. He's reserved hell for those who do not come to him through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. In all of us, the human condition is that we are all guilty of sin, sons and daughters of Adam. Happy Father's Day, you were born a sinner. We're all in different ways guilty of the same crime. We've all rebelled against the almighty, holy, just God. This is the reality for all of humanity. Every single person is a sinner without exception, and every single human being deserves God's eternal condemnation in hell. I've just went super hard on that point for a reason. I want you to see that the forgiveness of sins is the greatest need for anybody. Whether paralyzed or able-bodied. The forgiveness of sins is the greatest need that you have. We need forgiven. We need a savior. And this is why Jesus forgives this man's sins before he does anything else. Because the forgiveness of sins is what this man needs more than anything. Now, I want to take a second and be honest and level with you guys. And I hope you won't be upset with me over this. A, a prayer before I get in the pulpit is God help me to open up the wounds of the people of this church when it's appropriate so that I might show them the salve of the gospel that might heal their wound. So I'm going to be real, real with you for a second. I want to bring this home. Sometimes we think that our real problems are in this life. We think that our big problem is the fact that we don't have children. We think that our big problem is that we don't have a spouse or that our family doesn't get along or that we have a sick parent or friend, or that we love someone who is an addict, or that we ourselves are sick. We think that our problem is that our job isn't what we want, or that we don't make enough money, or that we aren't good looking enough, or that we're too stressed out or whatever it may be, and we could have a list going on and on and on of what we often think our problem is. Listen to me, all, those things can be problems. I'm not standing up here denying that you suffer. I'm not trying to minimize those things. They hurt. It's real, the pain is real. They cause us grief. Those are real issues. But those are all temporal problems. Those are temporary problems. Those are earthly problems. They are but for a short while. 70 or 80 years. Our real problem is sin. That's our eternal problem. The fact that we stand guilty before a holy God is the issue that needs resolved in our lives. 
Jesus wants us to shift our focus onto eternal needs and eternal realities more than focusing on the daily problems of this life. Jesus is more concerned with saving your soul than doing anything else for you. More than giving you a good job, more than saving you from pain, whether it be physical or emotional, more than healing your body, more than making your life better on this earth. He's concerned with saving your soul. Now, he may, and he often does, bless us in this life and give us relief from our earthly problems because he is that gracious of a king. But he is primarily concerned with making the unrighteous righteous in the eyes of God because that is the problem. We need to be forgiven. Think about it this way. If Christ fixed every earthly problem that you have but doesn't save your soul, what good is that to you? What good is that to you? You'll have a really great, awesome 70 or 80 years and then you will perish for eternity. In the final analysis, our life comes to nothing at the end if we do not have the forgiveness of sins. And this gives us perspective to our problems, doesn't it? This gives us some biblical, godly perspective on our lives and the things that happen to us. Listen to me, Christian. You, Christian, who have come to Christ in faith and have received the forgiveness of sins, your big problem is settled. It's settled. Christ has taken your sins, your past sins, today's sins, and tomorrow's sins, all of your sins, on himself and paid for them by his cross. You've been made perfectly righteous by his perfect life imputed to you by faith. And your sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ. Let me announce to you with no reservation that your biggest problem has been solved. Period. You're saved. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the biggest problem you've ever had has been solved by him in his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. You're saved. Knowing this, resting in this, allows us to rejoice in spite of the pains of this life. Spitefully rejoice, yes, that's what I'm telling you to do. You can grit your teeth whenever you see the suffering in your life and say, but I am saved, and in the end of the, at the end of the day, this does not matter that much. The pain is real, I really do hurt, but I know what comes next. This allows us to rejoice even in the sorrow, and your pain will make you sorrowful. But it makes us rejoice because we look forward to the promise that God has given to us in Christ. This promise of eternal life with him in the age to come. The promise of a coming age and kingdom where there will be no sickness, no sorrow, nor any death. The promise of dwelling in perfection with our God. He may or may not give us relief from our problems and pain in this life, but he has certainly prepared glory for us in the life to come. Our biggest problem has been fixed by Christ. And this helps us to meet the secondary problems of life with joy and push through them because we know the eternal outcome. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 put this beautifully. The Apostle Paul says, For this light momentary affliction, it's light and it's momentary, whatever it is. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen, the things that are earthly, they're transient, they're temporal, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal, they're forever. But this paralytic is forgiven his sins. Jesus forgives him. He's come to faith in Christ. He's done nothing to deserve this forgiveness. He's paralyzed. What can he do? What kind of thing can he merit? But Christ forgives him because our justification, our right standing with God is by faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus has solved this man's biggest problem. This is a great thing to rejoice over, right? Seriously, this should make you rejoice. This paralyzed man that we're reading about is in heaven now. He had his sins forgiven. But not everyone that day was excited to hear Jesus forgive the man. Verses 6 and 7 say, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes and Pharisees who were there, and I say Pharisees because Luke's account in Luke chapter 5 tells us the Pharisees are there as well. But these scribes and Pharisees who are there are furious at what Jesus just said to this man. Jesus has just claimed to be able to forgive this man's sins. The scribes understood what Jesus was saying here. They understood what Jesus was saying. They know that the Bible, all over the place in the Old Testament, says that only God can forgive sins. Now, prophets could proclaim that God has forgiven someone's sins, right? We see that. Uh, prophets doing that like Nathan. Whenever the prophet Nathan went to David after David repented of his adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah, he says, your sins are forgiven. Yahweh, the Lord, has put away your sin. Right? Prophets could proclaim the forgiveness of sins to someone on behalf of God. Pastor Stephen does that before we take communion. He gives what we call absolution. He tells you if your faith is in Christ, he announces based on the word of God, your sins are forgiven you. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not declaring forgiveness like a prophet. Jesus was saying that he is directly forgiving this man's sin. This is something that only God can do. Only God can forgive sins. The scribes understood what Jesus was doing here. They recognized that Jesus is claiming to be on the same level as God. They recognized that they weren't dumb. They understand that Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh whenever he tells the paralytic that he's forgiven of his sins. And they're furious. They're furious that Jesus would do such a thing. Right? They think, who does this guy think he is? Our text tells us, they say in their hearts, he is a blasphemer. He's falsely claiming that he can do things that only God says that God can do. And in one sense, the scribes make a good theological point here. Seriously, the scribes had... The scribes and Pharisees had pretty good theology, wonky in some spots, but when they were right, they were really, really right. Only God can forgive. They're absolutely right. God is the one who has been sinned against. As I said earlier, he is the offended party. Therefore, only he has the authority to forgive the one who has sinned against him because only the offended party can forgive the offender. Let me illustrate this for you. This is kind of funny. If Tom, Jeff, and Carl, those are my made-up people names, my favorite. But if Tom, Jeff, and Carl are all hanging out, and Jeff hits Carl in the face, can Tom tell Jeff, it's okay, man, I forgive you? That's nonsense. 
That's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. Only the man who was punched can forgive the man who punched him. A third party cannot forgive someone for someone else. The same goes for God. Only God can forgive. You can't seek forgiveness for your sins from anyone but God. You can't seek to rid yourself of sin either and receive pardon that way. God must grant you pardon himself or you will remain without forgiveness. Listen, just think about this. If someone else could grant you forgiveness, then God would have an equal. That's impossible. That's blasphemy. And forgiveness comes on God's terms. That's how reconciliation works, isn't it? The one who's been offended sets the terms of reconciliation. God has set the terms of your pardon. And he has declared that you cannot work your way to receive forgiveness from him because of your own merits. That you can't buy your forgiveness by giving to a church or being generous to the poor. You can't look to living a moral good life for forgiveness. You can't even look to being sorry. Or, man, I really wish I hadn't done that sin against God. That's not going to get you forgiveness. You come to God on his own terms for forgiveness or you can't come. And his terms are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by faith in Christ are we forgiven and reconciled to the God we've offended because of our sin. As Peter tells us in the book of Acts, there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which we can be saved. Christ alone. But again, these scribes were partially right. Only God can forgive. But they were wrong in that they thought Jesus was blaspheming. Now, if Jesus isn't God, then he is blaspheming here. Seriously, if Jesus isn't God, then he is a blasphemer here. But indeed, Jesus is God. Mark's already given us a big clue to that. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says he is the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. In verses 2 and 3 of Mark 1, he quotes Isaiah saying, Prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the, that's God's personal name. Prepare the way of Yahweh. He is coming. And then here's John the Baptist saying, Yahweh is coming. And then Jesus appears. We know he is God. So these scribes understood what Jesus was claiming. And we should too. He's claiming to be God. Let's not be confused. Please hear me on this. Especially if you're someone who's kind of on the fence and you don't really know what to do with Jesus. Listen to me. The Pharisees' logic is right. Jesus is either God or he's a blasphemer who deserves to be stoned to death under the Levitical law. There is no middle option. He's not just some teacher. I hate it when you hear this junk that people like to say in the secular world. He was a good holy man. He was a good teacher. He taught some good morality. That's nonsense. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just another rabbi. He's claiming to be God. Either he is God or he is a liar and deserves to die. He can either forgive sins or he can't. He's either God or he's only a man. He's either telling the truth or he is a fraud worthy of condemnation. There is no middle option. So enough of this foolishness that Jesus was just a good teacher. Don't buy that crap. That's what it is. Don't let people get away with that either whenever they tell you that. Jesus claimed to be God. He was either a liar or he is actually the son of God. But you can't just say he was a nice, good teacher. You have to do something with him that's more than that. He doesn't leave you another option. But Jesus isn't messing around with these Pharisees. 
He's not playing with him. He's going to prove that he's the son of God. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Uh, red flag number one for these scribes. This guy can read your mind, <laughs> right? They, ha they hadn't verbally spoken a word. They were thinking Jesus is a blasphemer and Jesus knows what they're thinking. Who knows the thoughts of man except the God who knows all things? Only God can infallibly know what you're thinking. The fact that Jesus can answer the thoughts of the scribes, which he does more than once throughout the Gospels, should be a sign to them of what we already know from chapter 1. He is the Lord. He is God. But Jesus goes on to pose a question to the scribes and then work a miracle. This is his proof that he can forgive sins. He says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? This question Jesus poses to them. You might think it's a little bit strange. right? And I think that there's two valid ways, in my opinion, two valid ways that you can understand what Jesus is saying here. Which is easier? Your sins are forgiven, rise, take up your bed and walk. The first way we could look at this is say, neither. Neither of them are easier. <laughs> right? To say your sins are forgiven and it be effectual, and to say rise, take up your bed and walk, and it also be effectual, are both equally impossible for anyone to say and do except God alone. Neither. Or, this is the one I prefer, it's clearly easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Why is that easier? We know on a deeper level, ultimately, the forgiveness of sins is going to be much harder because it's going to take Christ going to the cross and suffering the wrath of God in place of sinners and coming back from the dead to achieve the forgiveness of sins for people. But in this moment, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's a spiritual statement. You can't see the forgiveness of sins, can you? You can't. You can't see that, which means you can't disprove such a statement because there is no tangible proof in the moment that the person either wasn't forgiven or that they were forgiven. But it's harder to say, get up and walk. Why? Because if that dude doesn't get up and walk, then the one who said get up and walk is proven to be a liar who has no power. So the logic here is, if Jesus can do the visible miracle of healing this paralytic, then it will be evidence that he has the power and authority to do the spiritual miracle of forgiving sins. So whether or not Jesus is lying about being able to forgive sinners hinges on whether or not he can physically heal this paralytic. So Jesus continues to speak in verse 10. Which is easier? But that you may know. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. With a word, the Lord Jesus healed this man of his paralysis. 
And in doing so, Jesus proves that he really does have the ability and the authority to forgive sins. He really is the Son of God. He really is the second person of the Trinity. He really is God in the flesh. With a word, a word, Jesus gives irrefutable proof that he can forgive sinners. This is beautiful. This should make your heart burst with joy. This is a beautiful thing for us to see here. Because Jesus can heal the body with a word, we know that he isn't lying when he says that he can heal our souls and make us clean by his cross. Jesus' word, your sins are forgiven. Please hear this. His word, your sins are forgiven, is every bit as certain and real and sure as rise, take up your bed and go home. If you've come to faith in Christ, trusting in him to make you right with God, trusting him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then I want you to know that just as certainly as this paralyzed man got up and walked out the door, your sins have been forgiven. Your pardon is just as real as this man's physical healing. You are saved, Christian. You are forgiven. You have been declared righteous by God. You are justified. You've been reconciled to the one that you've offended. The purpose of this miracle, as I've said already, Jesus tells us is that you may know that he has authority to forgive sins. That you may know. Now I know in the immediate context he's saying that to the scribes who accused him of blasphemy, and I get that. But it's no less true for us. Again, sometimes I think we might, though we affirm the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, and we affirm that we love the Scriptures, that we might sometimes read these stories as if they're just stories rather than historical accounts. Know this, this is recorded that you may know that your sins are forgiven. That you may know that Jesus is the Messiah. This happened. It's written that you might know that he's the Son of God. And that we might know that the forgiveness of sins really does rest in him and only him. These aren't made up stories. These are true accounts of what happened. Where's your proof that Jesus is the son of God who can forgive sins? Here. He healed a paralyzed man. He has the authority to do that. And he did it that I might know that he has authority to forgive sins. He can forgive. He really will forgive. He really is God. Our faith is founded on something rock solid and sure. Nothing less than the very word of God. We are no fools for coming to Christ and resting in him for our salvation. He really is who he claimed to be. The forgiveness of sins is really found in him alone. But now, closing with our application, I want, us to, I want to point out a couple of things. One, I hope convicts you and encourages you to evangelize because I think that's a problem in our church right now personally. I don't know if we evangelize like we once did. And the second point of application, I want you to rejoice and rest in. It's a weird thing for Christians. We're always resting in Christ and then striving to work and be obedient because we love him. But the first thing, do you guys remember we talked about the friends of the paralytic? They brought the man to Jesus. They were willing to do whatever they could to bring him to Christ. They weren't lazy. They didn't care what the crowd thought. No, no doubt that crowd was angry with them for what they did. They, weren't, they were determined to bring this man to Christ. They loved him enough to do all of that. 
whatever it took to make it happen, to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. Do you love your unsaved friends and family like that? They are spiritual paralytics. Do you love them enough to carry them to Christ? Are you willing to do anything at all? I'm serious, at all, for your friends to come to Christ. I'm not suggesting that you kidnap anyone to bring them to church. That would be a felony. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you kidnap anyone to bring them back to your house for evangelism. But have you carried anyone to Christ in your prayers? You know unsaved people. Do you carry them to Christ in your prayers? Have you carried them to Christ in your conversations? Have you carried them to Christ by opening the word of God and telling them their need for a savior? Have you told them that you know the one who can make them well spiritually? Or have you become so spiritually lazy that you don't think it's worth it? God help the reformed church in this. I'm being honest. I'm, I'm hitting our tribe right now. We love theology. Love to... to argue with Arminians about the nature of justification and that you can't lose it. We love to talk about God's sovereign work and salvation. We love to talk about even, well, no, that doesn't mean that we don't have to evangelize because the word still tells us to go and evangelize. So our Calvinism is not heresy. And then you won't tell anyone anything. God help us. Are you too lazy that you don't think it's worth it? That your friend or family member is too heavy that you don't want to lift them anymore and try to take them to the Lord? Don't give up. The friends in this narrative didn't. They persevered. They loved their friend enough to do whatever they had to. And ultimately, we know this is up to God. But we do have a responsibility to try to bring people to Christ. He who wins souls is wise. That's what the Proverbs say. And Christ ultimately was glorified in their perseverance to bring their friend to him, wasn't he? He was glorified in it. So tell them the gospel. Engage with them. Do whatever you have to do. Don't let yourself rest. Please listen to me. Don't let yourself rest tonight until you are on your way to them. God has blessed us with these things. We can text people. You can email someone. You can give someone a call. You can stop by someone's house. I'm worried about your soul. Be up front with them. I want to talk to you about eternal things. Don't be a coward. Be bold for the Lord. Love them enough to at least try. And the second thing. Jesus declared the paralytic man's sins forgiven. He spoke a word of forgiveness. I want this to encourage you. He spoke a word of forgiveness, and it was a reality immediately. He was forgiven immediately. Christ's word of pardon is that powerful. When he says, your son, your sins are forgiven, it's true. He has the authority to forgive. He has the ability to forgive. He is willing to forgive, as we saw last week with the leper, and he does forgive all who come to him in faith. I brought that up because I know we have people here in this church who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. Maybe it's a lifelong struggle for you. 
You just don't think God loves you. It's too good to be true. And you doubt the reality of the forgiveness of your sins. Or maybe you're currently questioning your salvation because you have recently succumbed to some kind of sin. Or you're battling some kind of habitual sin that you failed so many times to mortify, to kill. Now, keep fighting. Don't let what I'm getting ready to tell you make you lazy or become an antinomian. That's wicked. But Christian, you who struggle with, have I really been forgiven? Is heaven really my home? Does God actually love me? Has Christ actually forgiven my sins? Do you ever wish that Jesus would just place his hand on your head and say, I forgive you? You ever felt like that? I'm sure all of us at some point in our walk with Christ, I just wish that he would just look me in the eye and say, your, your sins are forgiven. He does. If you ever have craved that, he does it right here in this text. He does it right here. He proclaims it in his word and by the work of his cross. What he said to the paralytic is true for you. You're actually forgiven. So take hold of your assurance here in this passage, Christian. The Almighty Son of God has said to you, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. And so they are. Rest in his proclamation of forgiveness over you and rejoice in his forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins is found in Christ alone. And blessed are all who look to him for grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of sacred scripture that speaks so much to us, so much that we didn't even get to go into this evening. We thank you, those of us who have come to faith in Christ, that our salvation rests in him and his word of pardon that comes by his blood and his cross. God, we ask that you would bless those who are struggling with the assurance of salvation. We ask that you would convict and grant repentance to those of us who have become spiritually lazy and who have refused to evangelize and carry people to Christ. Forgive us, God, and show us what we ought to do. Give us boldness. Give us a heart that loves you enough to do it and a heart that loves our neighbor enough. Please help us, God. Lord, I pray for those of us who have become so focused on the temporary problems of this life that we think that those are our big problems, that we look to this text and see that Christ has solved our actual problem in forgiving us. God, help us to see things from an eternal perspective. Please seal all these truths to our heart, God, that we might believe and walk in faithfulness and believing. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.